Welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, a place where we ask big questions of small things as we gather around the table with makers, thinkers, and doers. So grab your favorite drink, pull up a chair, and join us. And now, here are your hosts, Caben Kramer and Chris Quant. Well, hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of of Dust and Divinity. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Quant. Caben Kramer can't be here today, but he is here in spirit, and he actually did the interview that we're about to hear with Tim Bannister. Tim is an incredible individual, and you'll hear why as Caben goes through this interview and asks just some really fantastic pointed questions. I got to say that this conversation had me from the very beginning. And I got to tell you, hearing Tim's story, not only about when he was overseas in Africa, but how he's bringing these concepts that he learned over there back to the Western world, him being in Canada, but but also we could talk about that in the United States as well, is absolutely incredible. And, and hearing, gosh, I mean, spoiler alert, talking about taking soil in Africa that we're it was a dump. Batteries were dumped there and light bulbs and just shards of everything that you think the soil would be unusable. And yet how he took it and turned it around in a relatively short amount of time and actually was producing viable crops and then showing others how to do that as well and getting these bumper crops that where nobody thought maybe you could grow uh, food like that is absolutely insane. And I got to tell you, as he's talking about the soil, right? And I just so love how that ties in with, you know, soil, soul, and city, which is one of the main themes that we thread through these entire conversations. As he was talking about this idea of compost, it really brought back one of my most vivid, vivid sense memories growing up as a child. My grandparents had a farm and grew up basically on the farm. We'd spend summers there and it wasn't too far from the house that I grew up in. So we went there a lot. But one of my most vivid sense memories growing up is grandma and grandpa's compost pile. And I swear by the time that I arrived on planet Earth, that compost pile had probably already been there for 20 years or something like that but I always remember walking by that and it was the most it it smelled like peat moss and leather-bound books it was just this really deep rich earthy smell and and it was just I'll never forget it and they used it in their garden they had you know just this really great garden where they grow all sorts of things and the best corn on the cob I've ever had in my life but this is a circle where when the garden was harvested and, and then all of the, you know, that would go into the compost pile, the, the extra bits from the food and the vegetables and the fruit would all go in there. And it's just this incredible circle of life. So I so love how he's talking about these things that you don't even have to be a farmer, <laughs> you know, to be interested in this. This is this is fascinating from the start, just seeing how the earth works and, and the, the worms and even termites, like how useful are termites. So why don't we jump in right now and listen to the conversation? I knew one spectacular example where a farmer in Ukambani increased his yield by five times. Whoa, okay. It was spectacular. Mm. And I, even now, when I say that, I think that can't be right. (laughs) We must have miscalculated something. But I I know. Yeah. Okay. I know that he did because I saw. (laughs) 
Well, I'm I'm excited for this time because you know, to be honest, when you guys were still in Tanzania, I had been in conversations with Jen, my wife, saying, "Hey, you know, I would love to find a period. We've got some connections still in Uganda." saying, I would love to go visit those, and then I'd love to spend like a week or two with the banisters in Tanzania just to learn from them a little bit about how they do their approach to farming and community and relationships and all that. And then, of course, I heard you guys were coming back. Um, so I thought, well, if I can't spend a week there in person, maybe I can at least get <laughs> a little bit of a download through just a, a Zoom conversation from you. <laughs> well, it's it's a bit of a surprise to us as well. We had kind of hoped to continue for at least another two years there. Everything just sort of conspired, plus the COVID crisis. You know, we couldn't do ministry. I couldn't do training for farmers. Uh, even our church services were very, very limited. So we we contacted a few people and said, what do you think? And pretty much everybody said, yeah, I think it's time you were home. Hmm. So here we are. Hmm. And our grandkids wow. are getting older and we don't, we don't want to be seeing our grandkids once every two or three years. We want to see them you know, two or three times a year. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we can. That's a powerful equation, that's for sure. Yeah, wow. Yeah, how are you doing? Okay. Man, we are loving farming. I never, 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 never thought I would ever say that out loud, but... Is um, that so? Yeah, yeah. You know, because I always perceived the farm as a dead end, right? There, There's no promotion. There's no way my own effort can necessarily extort more from the soil, right? There's no mm -hmm. sense of, you know, the, the trees don't give me a round of applause when I do well. And so there was all these <laughs> things that conspired to make me believe, right? That somehow farming was a dead end. Um, right. But, but when we moved up here in 2018, there was a lot of transitions going on in my life at the time, but one of those was really seeing that, no, the farm is, is really a gift. Um, and you know, out here we've got 60 acres and my parents live here on the property with us. And, um, you know, sometimes I can go a whole week without leaving the property. So it's really kind of a semi monastic yeah. lifestyle, um, <laughs> which has its pros and cons, but it's been a gift these last. To say. That's, <laughs> that's a very bizarre description of, of your, your life at present. Okay. So obviously when I knew you, first of all, mm -hmm. I was much younger, um, mm -hmm. but you were an English teacher at the time. All right. And then you became mm -hmm. kind of a farmer consultant in Tanzania. So what was that? Can you just, for the sake of this podcast episode, can you just walk us through that journey of what was it like for you? Kind of take us on a little bit of your story um, as we kind of get into this, because I want to hear more about farming God's way and other things, mm -hmm. but let's kind of start with some pretext. Well, uh, I did not come from a farm family. Um, I, uh, I grew up in kind of a suburban community, but my grandparents on my mother's side uh, ran a, a small fruit operation like raspberries, strawberries, currants, blueberries. They did grow apples, but their property just wasn't suitable. But they did a lot of small fruit stuff. And on my father's side, uh, my grandmother raised hogs and also had a huge vegetable garden. And all of us grandchildren were expected to help out on the family farms in the summertime. <laughs> so I grew up farming for my relatives i didn't mm. i didn't farm myself but i farmed for my relatives and 
uh, I've always kept a, a garden. And all of my siblings, actually, we all are, frankly, very obsessive gardeners. <laughs> <laughs> so when I got to Kenya, and I had a little patch that I, I started growing vegetables on, mostly maize, uh, just to see if I could grow it on. It was it was it actually was terrible soil. It's where they had mm. scraped all the soil off the hillside in order to put the dorm there. And so mm. I only had about I only had about four inches of soil and it wasn't mm. very good and had a lot of trash in it, old batteries and bits of light bulb and that sort of thing. <laughs> but I just thought, oh, I'll give it a try. Yeah. And I if I do say so myself, I grew some pretty amazing maize. Mm. But that just got me thinking, if it's that easy to grow food in Africa, why is everybody struggling through the hungry months every year? And yeah. every at least every third year, even in a place like Kajabi, people don't get any crop. Yeah. So I started doing some research and visiting some farms. I started with the farm that our housekeeper and gardener had. Mm. And I just kept thinking... Surely they can get more out of the soil than that. What these these shambas look terrible, and these are smart mm. people. Mm. So, at one point, it was the guidance counselor. They're the head of head of counseling services. John, I can't remember his last name. Um, he said, "I know a guy that you need to meet. He's this South African guy, and he says that he can go onto almost any garden in Africa and double their yield in a year." Wow. Okay. Well, I just said, my mama didn't raise no fools. That's a lie. <laughs> you know, mom always used to say, if it sounds too good to be true, it's because it's too good to be true. Right. But anyway, this guy uh, was up visiting his sons at RVA and we got together. And he just said, I'm, I'm not even going to try and convince you. He said, I, I acknowledge that this sounds crazy. He said, here's the manual for farming God's way, go do it yourself. Well, by that time, we had left RVA. But uh, I built a huge, or a, a very high fence around a small patch and planted maize. And this is in a very arid region. It's, it's considered by the Kenyan government to be outside of the arable region hmm. for, for farming. But I, I planted maize. And the... the manager it's a big game ranch what it is out in the Kapiti plains the manager came over to my house and he said i hear you're planting maize and i said yes and he said well don't he said we've hmm. tried it many times and we've never been able to get a crop hmm. and i just said look thuo i believe you <laughs> yeah said, but i've heard about this weird new type of guard gardening and i have to try it and i said so here's the deal if i can grow maize then you owe me a meal at uh, the local <laughs> hotel and if yeah. If I don't, then I will buy you a meal in the local hotel. Wonderful. He said, done. Yeah. And boy, howdy, did I grow maize. It was like, really? it, was, okay. it was, some of the stalks were seven feet high. Wow. wow. And every stalk had at least one big ear. A couple of them, not a couple of them, about 10% of them had two big ears, fully developed ears of maize. And uh, so I was sold. I was immediately sold. I had almost 100% germination of wow. uh, of the seed even. Wow. So about this, that same time, I met a new professor over at uh, Daystar University, which was across the highway. And he was a professor of, uh, 
appropriate and applied technology and, and farming, mm-hmm. vegetable farming. And he and I actually became best buds and uh, we kept experimenting with different things. And finally, the guy who introduced me to farming God, God's way said, you need to go to South Africa and you need to, uh, you need to uh, get your accreditation to teach. So I did, spent three weeks down there and got my accreditation to be an instructor. Uh, and then I worked with Care of Creation, which is an organization that is now up at Kajabi. It used to be in Lemuru, but now it's in Kajabi. And helped uh, two men at Care of Creation get accredited um, as trainers. And then I just thought, well, I'm an accredited trainer. I actually have a fair bit of time in my hands. I'm going to start training. So I worked under the auspices of the African Brotherhood Church. But I had a lot of really neat opportunities. Like uh, I trained a bunch of Somali refugee women in Eastleigh mm. and uh, in the Madari Valley area, area of the slums. And it was just, it was just so gratifying to see these Somali women saying, <laughs> I can market vegetables. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. have so much vegetables, I'll be able to market vegetables. And I said, yes, wow. you can. Wow. And uh, so that just really, my heart got into it. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I did a fair bit of training, mostly with, uh, eventually, mostly through care of creation. Mm. But then we moved to Liberia briefly, and I taught a group of about 15 high school students mm. uh, who were very, very excited about it. And that was we used a former garbage dump wow. and the soil was poisoned with like car battery acid and yeah. uh, all kinds of toxic junk and car parts and tin foil and plastic. Uh, but we, and, and erosion over the generations had, dis- had destroyed about the top roughly one foot of topsoil. So what we did first uh, at the end of one semester is we piled about uh, six or seven inches deep of straw and grass mm. and hay and leaves on an area about uh, 40 foot by 30 foot. And then we just left it through the rainy season and that all rotted down. And then we were able to plant a garden. Mm. And I never thought that high school students could get that excited about soil. <laughs> But one kid, just this tiny little squirt by the name of uh, Sa, he was quite excited when I told him that in Kiswahili that meant time or clock, but his name was Sa. And I'm not sure if this is a G-rated web uh, <laughs> blog, but uh, one Saturday morning he came by early because that's when our trainings were, it was a Saturday morning. And he walked over and he started peeling back some of that, that uh, turf that mm-hmm. uh, now composted down yeah and he just goes he stands up and he goes holy shit mr banister look at the new soil (laughs) and it was very exciting i actually said that's what i'm going to name my first book (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's incredible but uh we we were able to grow uh pineapples wow uh we started some grapefruit trees and some hybrid mangoes well we we started the the trees from seed but then we grafted mangoes onto them and peppers sweet peppers and chili peppers mm. almost effortlessly wow wow and uh, so by the end of our we only lived in liberia for a little over nine months and then we came back to kenya briefly then we went to 
Canada, and then we wound up in Tanzania. And I was actually in charge of the farm. And we never did get the whole thing turned into farming God's way, but we got a lot of it turned into farming God's way. Mm. And it was, it was very, very gratifying to have that farm so that people from the community could come by and say, how did you do this? I've never been able to yeah. grow that. Yeah. Or how did you grow that so fast? Or we didn't have any rain this year. How did you do that? Hmm. You know, hmm. uh, now that I'm back in Canada, um, I can't do anything right now because COVID, but, uh, once I am able, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to start some trainings. Okay. Yeah. And, and so primarily then what, what's the secret sauce? Is it primarily focused on building a compost mat? Like you described in Liberia or what's the primary, like wh what's, what lets you grow maize in a trash pit? It, it comes down to several things. One is yes. Building soil through massive composting. Now I do both, uh, in situ composting. Mm -hmm. Like if I, if I think yeah. the soil in a certain area is depleted, I will get my hands on whatever organic material I can find. Mm. Like one of the first things I used in Kenya was, uh, there, was <coughs> there was a lot of road construction down our way. <coughs> and a lot of vendors were selling food along the roadside. Mm. And a lot of them were selling sugarcane. Mm. And so one day I just stopped and I bought a, <coughs> A bag of sugar cane but and then i said what do you do with all your peels yeah and they said we burn them over there mm. and uh, so i continued on into town and i bought probably five bags of garbage bags and mm. came back out and i i started handing them out to all of these vendors and said i'll pay you 10 shillings for every bag full of Perfect. of uh and that's what i did my first my first time when i had that amazing maze wow um, now that was good soil to begin with. I just, I knew I had to keep the soil covered, but I do yeah. the in situ, but I also do compost piles. Okay. Okay. And on the farm we had, we had uh, a dozen cattle, uh, dairy mm. cattle. So I had all the manure I needed and I mixed that yeah. with, uh, corn stalks, maize stalks and, mm. uh, uh, leaves and grass, whatever I could get my hands on, but it was mostly yeah. maize stalks and cow manure. Okay. So at any given time, we had five active piles of manure mm. about uh, about a meter high and about four meters long and about mm. a meter wide. Mm. So I do both yeah. because I, I think that if there is such a thing as magic, it's compost. It, yeah, man. You know? Sure. It, is, yeah. I, it's, it's just, it always blows my mind, not only how it puts the nutrients into the soil, but it dramatically, dramatically improves the moisture holding capacity of the soil. Mm. It's that to me is the biggest part of the miracle is that moisture yeah. retention that you yeah. get when you're heavily composting. And, and was that one of the reasons why in Authy river, they were critical of you growing, why, why it was outside the arable zone was because of moisture. And then yeah. The yeah. Well, first of all, that. the rainy seasons there are not that reliable. We, mm. You know, considering that most of Kenya gets two rainy seasons a year, the Athi River region would probably get, on average, maybe three out of every five years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Or three out of every five seasons, I should say. Okay. Um, so right. you've got to have soil that really retains moisture a lot. Yeah. And, and I can say that once I started taking Farming God's Way seriously uh, and started composting 
like almost insanely composting. Um, our, our moisture retention just exploded. You know, yeah. it was just amazing. Yeah. And when we moved, when we moved to the farm in, in Tanzania, the soil was all like talcum powder, very, very mm. fine and powdery and the wind would take mm. it in a New York minute. But the simple act of heavily composting and, uh, and keeping the soil covered, you know, one of the big problems with farming is erosion, wind yeah. erosion and, you know, and water erosion. We built our soil mm. and we could, we could see the change from season to season. Mm. But for that. me, the, the big dramatic uh, difference was the soil, the moisture retention capacity of the soil. Mm. Cause that, that talcum powder soil doesn't do anything. Right. Yeah. It won't hold anything. Yeah. It all evaporates or just goes down deep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the first thing is heavy, heavy compost mulch. Okay. Um, Somebody says, well, is there such a thing as too much? No. No, At least I haven't found that limit. Right. I should say. And and, and now when when you're doing that, I'm curious because I've heard about this, but I haven't been able to verify it. So out here on our farm, we Mm -hmm. do all in situ composting. So Mm -hmm. our walnut trees drop their leaves mm-hmm. and then we prune them and we uh, shred all of the prunings directly in the row mm-hmm. and we plant a mm-hmm. cover crop directly on that. So every mm-hmm. year we're getting some, you know, green leaf, some brown sticks mm-hmm. and, and roots of living compost to anchor it into the ground. So we're building our soil that way on the farm. One thing I'm hearing a lot about right now is that not only are you adding moisture capacity and nutrition in that top layer where the actual compost is, but it's actually drawing down and changing the soil structure well below Absolutely. where the compost actually is. And did you see that in yes. East Africa? Yes. Okay. Um, we didn't live on, we only lived in the farm for three years, but in that three years, I could, I could go to an area where we hadn't composted and I could rake my fingers through the soil because the soil mm. was as dead as a knit. Yeah you know, and, and really just walking. If, if I took 50 paces through a field that hadn't been treated with compost, uh, my, my clothing from my hips down would be covered in dust. Wow. You know, wow. but in the areas where I had composted heavily at the end of three years, I could, I could take up my jackknife and I could slice a bit of that soil out and pick it up and it would stay intact. Oh my goodness! You know that because is, of that is uh, fungal mycelium permeating yeah. the soil, and a lot more due to uh, uh, bugs in the soil and yeah. worms. Yeah, we had never nobody had ever seen worms. We had worms. The worms had always been there. They just obviously wow. could never stay near the surface. Wow! But wow. now they could because wow. the surface was nice and cool because yeah. it was covered in grass or or leaves or hay or whatever. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, that's the first thing. And I can't stress that enough. The second one is always, 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 always keep the soil covered. Don't mm. let the sun touch the soil mm. ever. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, yeah. Because if, if you look at daytime and nighttime temperatures, especially in Africa and possibly mm. in California as well, you have right. a sine wave gradient of temperature. Absolutely. Okay? Daytime, yeah. it can be as high, even if you're, if you're daytime, air temperatures are only in the 70s your Mm. soil surface temperature can be a good 10 degrees higher Mm. especially at noonday and then at night it drops and you can have you can have as much as a 20 degree difference between your two o'clock in the morning soil temperature soil surface temperature and your two o'clock in the afternoon 
Mm-hmm. You know, so you've got, the, and what happens is at the top of that sine wave or near the top of that sine wave and at the near the bottom of the sine wave, you enter a no growth mm. period of maybe mm. a couple of hours in the day and a couple of hours at night because it's either too hot for growth or too cold for growth. Mm-hmm. But if you compost, well, if you mulch, mm-hmm. okay, yeah. then the sine wave stops going like this and it goes like this. And okay. you stay yeah. within a 24-hour growth period. Wow. Instead of having, say, 18 hours or 16 hours yeah. growth a day, you get 24, which in the mm. tropics is much faster. Wow. Uh, as an example, that maize that I grew on the farm the first time, uh, it was supposed to be 16 to 18 weeks before you could harvest. And if you left it until it was dry, then it was like 20, 24 weeks. Mm. Mine grew in uh in a little over 12 weeks wow but wow. that's because it had 24 hour growth yeah so, yeah, yeah i i flattened that sine wave dramatically hmm. and hmm. and again if you've got a six week rainy season you really need to find ways to extend that by yeah. composting and improving the soil or the moisture retention and keeping the surface temperature very even Right. That, to that increase will extend the that the yeah. plant can grow in yeah. that rainy. And your now. evaporation rate is nearly right. zero. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. you've covered the soil. Yeah. So that's the second thing. And and you primarily use straws to, to mulch? <coughs> what would you use? Um, I, I have generally used bales of straw or bales of hay just yeah. because it's very easy to use and it's readily available. However, yeah. I've, I've used the sugarcane peelings. Mm-hmm. I've used I've used leaves. I've used uh, old feed sacks made out of uh, hessian. What's the uh, burlap? Mm-hmm. Um, I've used I've used brown paper bags. Hmm. Um, I've used newspaper print that's shredded. Um, so more of the story. Anything you can get your hands on that's a yeah. high carbon ratio. Well, that won't break down too quickly. Jeffrey Lawton, who is the uh, kind of the current guru of the permaculture movement basically says this, if it has lived, it can live again. Mm. Okay. Either by, you know, using it as compost or using it as mulch um, and shredded newspaper. It used to be the shredded newspaper would be a disaster because an awful lot of uh, um, printing companies use toxic ink, even lead based Mm. ink in the past, but almost all newspapers now, insofar as there are still newspapers, (laughs) mostly use vegetable based inks mm. uh, so frankly i think newsprint is uh marvelous stuff but as i yeah. say i've i've used ripped up old uh, paper bags um i will get my hands on anything and i will use it so it's, okay it's just that hay or straw is very easy to use yeah yeah and they yeah. they will last about a season which is about exactly yeah. what you want Right. Exactly. Right. And then, then, then it buries in and it adds to all that other good soil building stuff underneath. Yeah. The third thing is dig only. And this is rigidly important. Mm. Only dig where you are going to plant seeds. Mm. Okay. No till it is absolutely no till Mm. because one of the things you do when you are tilling is you're busting up all of that nice fungal mycelium that is kind of the glue. Mm -hmm. 
and you're killing all of these nematodes because you're exposing them to the sunlight, which they can't handle. Mm -hmm. uh, all that nematode activity. And even, I know this sounds kind of counterintuitive because the word termite is a scary word. Mm -hmm. But we need them, especially in mm -hmm. the arid regions where it's maybe too hot for, for worms. Mm -hmm. Okay? So you've got to be careful to leave the soil intact exact, except exactly where you're going to plant. So you build your one furrow for your beans or whatever, or your peas, mm -hmm. whatever your legume of choice is. And you fertilize that plant and then you cover it over. But to the left and to the right of that furrow, Don't it's touch strictly it. hands off. With maize, you're on a 60 by 75 centimeter grid and you mm. dig at the, at the confluences of, of that grid mm. and, and only there. Mm. And you will find that your, your weeding needs nearly disappear. I have a friend who has 3,000 acres up in, in Alberta. He's a wheat farmer. And he had switched to entirely no-till. Hmm. Plus, he, he would blow all of his uh, crop residue right back onto the field. Yep. He was combine harvester. And I said, how's that working for you? And he said, it's working great. I said, you can make a profit. And he looks at me and he said, here's the deal, Tim. I used to be on my field up to seven times a year with my mm. tractor and or combine harvester. Mm. And he said, now I plant and I harvest. Wow. And he says, yeah. so in, in time savings and in cost savings for all that fuel and the upkeep of yeah. my vehicles, he says, I'm laughing all the way to the bank. Wow. And wow. I said, if you had some really good bumper crops, and he said, I get bumper crops when my neighbors get bumper crops, and I get bad yeah. crops when my neighbors get bad crops. Right. He said, the difference is my profit margins are way, way higher. Yep. You know? Yep. And and again, and he's following, you know, he's not calling it farming God's way, but he's following those same principles, right? Yes. Keeping the ground yes. covered with the straw yeah. and no-till. And okay, so those are three important elements of soil management to help crops grow mm -hmm. um are there other things with soil or are there other management practices then that, that make a difference um there are things that i think you don't want to do number one is um if you're cutting branches off of trees in your pruning process and you know putting those through the shredder and then just throwing them on the ground i don't see any problem with that but if you've got bare soil in the first place and you start mixing in particularly pine wood chips mm. it's a bad mm. idea it's okay. I don't know the dynamics. I'll be quite honest. I've heard several different stories, but it really inhibits growth. Hmm. I don't, I don't know why that is. Uh, the only time I found that that has helped was with strawberries and I didn't have any straw. So I used, I used wood chips from a local, uh, uh, carpentry shop and it didn't seem to harm anything. Um, but in areas where I have, just spread wood chips on the ground and then plant it into that. I have not found that was a good idea. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, other than that, anything that I've used to cover the soil has been good. Something else, if, if you're talking to small timers, like people are just doing a backyard garden and they say, well, I've got to dig up all the weeds. No, no, you don't. Okay. Okay. So yeah. What, so what do you do with the weeds then? You, you just make sure your hoe or your djembe, whichever language we're talking in, 
is really sharp, like almost like a knife edge sharp. Mm. And you just chip off what shows above the soil. Mm. Okay. Now I do one extra thing, which is not specifically a farming God's way thing, but it's very effective. And I'll be doing it sometime in the next few weeks. Uh, as soon as the snow is mostly gone, you don't even have to wait for it all to be gone. Cover the land that you want to cultivate with a tarp. Mm. And just leave that tarp in place until like a few days before you're ready to plant. Yeah. And when you peel it off, all those weeds and the grass and everything will be dead as a net. Yeah. Just, just a little bit of fumigation. When yeah. And you can, up. and you can yeah. plant right into that mass of dead grass and weeds and things like that. Yeah. But again, make your furrows, make your, your eye holes or whatever, but mm -hmm. you can do that right into the dead grass and the dead uh, weeds and things like that. Okay. And, and so then when you like, so when you were in Tanzania, you said you were on a farm. So, but then I, I believe you did some other projects off the farm as well. How do you come into these communities who have been farming in this particular way? And I'm also thinking now in Canada, right? When you're there, mm -hmm. how, you know, when you approach a community and say, we're going to try this new thing, how do you not get laughed out of the room or have people feel like you're completely disrespecting them? I do what my mentor said to me. I'm not, I'm not here to convince you. Mm. I'm here to teach you. And I believe that you will be convinced at the end of your first harvest, mm. you know, now I admit that in Kenya, I knew farmers who switched to farming God's way. And I knew one spectacular example where a farmer in Ukambani increased his yield by five times. Whoa. Okay. That's dramatic. It was spectacular. Hmm. And I, even now when I say that, I think that can't be right. <laughs> we must have miscalculated something. But I, I know. Yeah. Okay. I know that he did because I saw and he showed hmm. me the figure. But I have seen farmers who've had spectacular yields after switching. But after three or four or five years, they go back to their traditional methods. Interesting. Yeah. Just because it's easier to do what your neighbor does or what, what do you think drives? That? Well, I know that I know that in one part of Kenya, there is a fear of being more successful than your neighbor mm. because jealousy is a pretty awful thing. Mm. I, one of the guys who mentored me a bit lived in that region and he was eventually chased off of his land and accused of being a witch mm. Oh, wow. wow. Because his crop was doing well when the neighbors were dying of, you know, the, their shambas were dying of drought, you wow. know, so they, he, he literally was chased out of his community. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So instead of the whole community reaping the benefits, they just, yeah, yeah. Took a different approach. Uh, and, and old ways die hard. Now yeah. I found in Tanzania generally, at least in the area where I live near Arusha, people were much more willing to try new things than in mm. rural Kenya. Mm. Now, around Mount Kenya, I had no problem convincing people and getting them to adopt those practices. But in other areas of rural Kenya, it was much, much more difficult. Mm. But in Tanzania, it was at least in the Arusha region, people were quite, quite prepared to shift gears. Okay. And so then what, as I'm hearing all this, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of vegetable conversation, which is great, but I also heard you mention that you had about 12 dairy cows. Mm -hmm. So what were they doing during this whole time? How did you manage that livestock? Well, first of all, they were terrible cows. 
<laughs> they were uh, they were an Asian breed, I believe Pakistani, and they were bred for uh, surviving in hot, dry mm. conditions. They don't produce very good. Well, they produce good meat. They just don't produce much, much of it. And they produce mm. milk. They just don't produce very much of it. Mm. Okay. If you can get, if you can get five liters per cow per day, you're, mm. you're way ahead of the game, hmm. but they did provide manure. And the other thing about cattle or any grazer, but cattle are frankly, they're spectacular for this. Okay. If you cordon off areas of your land and you put your cows in the same pasture for five days, okay, back to the, back to the crowd at night, but every day for five days, you put them in that one pasture. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then you move them to another one for five days. Then you move them to another one for five days. The, the improvement in the quality of your soil and the quality of your pasture is, well, it's, it's breathtaking. If you have a moment, look up, what is his name? Alan Savory on mm. YouTube, okay? It'll, it'll blow your mind. Yeah, with, with the mob stock grazing and, and the, yep. the, yeah, it, uh, the high rotation. It is absolutely mind-blowing. Now the yeah. Chinese have adopted this at a very, very large scale now, and they're reclaiming parts of the, that have been Gobi Desert now for a hundred years. Wow. So that just by, I love that. Oh, it yeah. it it is absolutely mind-blowing. I'll tell you, Kevin, and you can you can take this to the bank as far as I'm concerned. The world is on the cusp mm. of the greatest revolution in agriculture that the world has ever known. Boy, I hope so, because if it's not, we're on the brink of the greatest collapse of agriculture we've yes. ever known. No, <laughs> it's it's going to brain. happen. Yeah. And most of this has been made in North America. Mm. But North American farmers are very slow to adopt. But the yeah. Chinese have grabbed a hold of it with both hands. Great. Okay. Good. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah, that, most, and that's why, yeah, yeah that, that, that's ahead. specifically why I was asking about the livestock is because, you know, out here on the farm, what we're doing, you know, obviously we have really dense canopy. I've got a nine-way cover crop right now. So it's canola and wheat and bell beans and and fava beans and um, a couple other things mixed in well uh, done mustard you and radish right but but that's yeah. all just cover crop right so i've, I've yeah. already done a, a first cutting of that so now i've got that green matter kind of mulching mm -hmm. in on top as well mm -hmm. but we're also running a little over 200 chickens in a mobile chicken coop that good, i move good. about every three days um and you know they're managing weed uh competition and they're providing that nitrogen deposit through their manure mm -hmm. um, but eventually I would love to get to a leader follower system where we have, you know, some pigs because pigs will eat the walnuts, right? Cause we don't yes. harvest all the walnuts, but the hard shelled walnuts, the chickens won't touch them. So right now I have to go out on my tractor, right? Spend diesel, spend time and actually mulch in the leftover walnuts or else pests will overwinter there and then infect the next year's crop. Mm -hmm. So if I can get pigs on the orchard, the pigs will eat the walnuts. Then behind Brilliant. the pigs, we can bring in some sheep. Sheep do a great job. They they clean up the lower parts of the tree without barking mm -hmm. the tree, mm -hmm. and then they also will eat whatever the sheep the pigs missed. Then you bring behind that some chickens. They'll peck mm -hmm. through all the manure, get rid of all the yeah. flies, and then you know go get a bunch of other good stuff in the soil. And then we'll actually create this soil creating caravan 
of livestock. Right. And, and this is why I was asking about because the, the cattle do it so well. The cattle, of course, would destroy my irrigation in the orchard. So I can't really do uh, that. But absolutely, yes. All you know, all that hoof action, all of that rumination, all mm -hmm. of that manure. And then when you do that in that density, and then you move them quickly to let the soil rest and recover, then yes. all of that good stuff comes up and incorporates all the good stuff down. And one other thing that you will notice, I hope, and if you can convince your neighbor farmers to do the same sorts of things you're doing, it's your water table is going to come back up. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um, it's certainly happening in a lot of places in Asia now where, where widespread cover crop and uh, mulching and that sort of thing, uh, depleted water tables are coming back up. And, and so what, what do you attribute that to draw that linkage? Is it just because the, 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 water infiltrates more slowly into those lower tables or what is it uh one of the phrases i use in farming god's way training is all the water that lands in your farm should stay in your farm mm -hmm. because the single biggest problem with agriculture in east africa is the water all runs off and takes soil with it mm. but the simple dynamic of composting and cover cropping mulching mm -hmm. uh, means that probably 99% of the rain that falls on your land stays there mm. and virtually none of it evaporates. Okay. Mm. So it slowly starts trickling down and we're not talking uh, about replenishing aquifers. Although I suspect over the next 50 years, we are going to discover in certain areas that aquifers have done just that they yeah. have they've come back okay mm -hmm. and again if you if you look at what the chinese are doing in areas of the gobi desert it's just mm. well again it's it's mind-blowing it mm. is absolutely you you just want to smack yourself in the head and think why didn't we think of this 40 years ago <laughs> you yeah. know yeah um yeah. how stupid were we <laughs> right but right. but everything in agriculture is being turned on its head you yeah. doing the the mixed seed cover crops mm -hmm. who would have done that 50 years ago right right no one yeah yeah okay my grandfather even after he retired he rented out his uh his fields and what did they grow timothy hay seed uh timothy hay one year mm -hmm. oats the next back mm -hmm. and forth back and forth back yeah. and forth and that was considered progressive because you weren't just doing one crop every time you know the same crop every time <laughs> that was yeah. progressive yeah um yeah but now that i've been planting i own roughly a fifth of my mother's family's original family farm i bought it oh, okay and uh i've been planting trees and i remember my grandfather saying one time when i was a boy there was a brook that flowed year round just along mm -hmm. that ridge there and then came down that way and down where you see that little drainage ditch and i said mm -hmm. it was year round and he says yeah and I said, does it run now? He says, a little bit in the spring with the snow melt. Wow. Well, now it's doing it again. It's happening mm. again. Okay. Mm. And I'm, I've got a friend of mine who's going to come down with, a, with this caterpillar, and he's going to do some terraforming for me and dig some swales, because I fully intend for every single drop of water that lands in my property to stay there. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's and you know, one thing, again, as I'm, I'm in these conversations and I'm hearing this, there's one side that there's kind of this belief that says, if we do this, it'll take us 50 to a hundred years to kind of recover soil and water cycles and other things. But then I'm also hearing stories uh, from you in Liberia and Tanzania, where you're like, 
one season, three seasons, the soil wants to heal. The earth yes. wants to be abundant. Yes. And and it's amazing that just a few simple changes in management practices, the earth gives us way more than we give it. Right? We give it a I, little bit of mulch. I entirely agree. Yeah. And it and it produces Right now, it's defying scientific evidence, right? Because we look at the mathematic chemical equations and we say, well, based on this input, we'll get that output. Based on that, mm-hmm. it'll take X number of years. We're seeing the earth do better than that. And and right now, it's hard to really engage that because so much of it is anecdotal. But all of these farmers I've been talking to, right, including yourself, you say, when when it's your boots on the ground and your hands in the soil, you see the change happen yes. exponentially faster than the science says it should. Well, I know I was in a I was in an agricultural seminar that was partly sponsored by what's called the Canadian Food Grains Bank, which is a coalition of churches that uh, allow farmers to donate a certain amount of grains mm. and receive tax credit for that. Okay, so it's it's about fifteen different church and parachurch organizations in Canada, mostly Mennonites. Well, it was Mennonites that started it, but it's a whole lot of different denominations now. But they sponsored this seminar in uh, in Machakas, Kenya. Um, and uh, one of the professors went to a university that's just actually not that far off the road from where I'm sitting. Hmm. And she's a soil scientist. And I don't generally argue with soil scientists. I learn everything I can from it. Yeah. Even if I don't agree with it, I will learn about it but uh she was saying that it takes over 100 years to grow or to to develop one inch of soil and i'm <laughs> <laughs> raise your hand tall in the back i got yeah, a question and she said what and i said i can do it in a year mm. and she said no you can't it's impossible i said would you like me to show you but she <laughs> you know she wouldn't now yeah okay she had a point she said but you're growing you're growing stuff in in compost and mm-hmm. i said yes mm-hmm. but what i'm trying to say to you is don't say things like that to farmers because it discourages right. them. yeah say let's stop the loss right now and start yep. taking it back right now and let's Absolutely. all be prepared to be stunned you know? yeah and, and again it can really be as simple as keep it covered plant mm-hmm. living roots in there mm-hmm. and and add whatever whatever material you can to just cover that soil and keep the living roots in the soil the moisture will be there the worms will be there it all it'll all be there if you just mm. if you change from a degenerative cycle to a regenerative cycle which yes. really doesn't take a lot it just takes some intention and and it takes a willingness to do something different than your neighbor right and that's what i'm running into here right cuz i'm surrounded by other walnut farmers who are you know still in a very traditional mode um, and, and people look at me crazy, right? Like one of my neighbors just went and bought 200 acres and thought that was fine. I was telling him about our 200 chickens and, and his response was, wow, 200 chickens sounds like a lot of extra to manage. And I said, well, you just bought 200 acres and that didn't seem like a, a lot to manage. So there's this thinking that says, mm-hmm. well, one kind of management's okay to take on another kind of management's yeah. not okay to take on. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Well, the guy that I told you about from Alberta, uh, I asked him that same thing. Did your neighbors laugh at you? And he said, oh, they were mortified. <laughs> he said, you'll, you'll be bankrupt in five years. Don't do it. Don't do this to your family. Mm. You, you can't do it that way. Because he mm. stopped using 
even chemical fertilizers, mm. okay, and herbicides. Uh, and he said, uh, and he said, after, you know, they begged me not to switch and I switched anyway, they started making fun of me. He said, but mm. they're not making fun of me anymore. Hmm. And I said, why not? And he said, well, if there's one thing a farmer pays close attention to, it's soil. And he said, it used to be that here was my soil and here was my neighbor's soil. Yeah, same level. But now it's yeah. kind of like this. <laughs> His soil is deeper. And yeah, he says, my soil keeps building and their wow. soil keeps eroding. He wow. said, and they they notice that. Mm. And he said, they're starting to come around. Now, this conversation took place about 15 years ago. Mm. So I would like to think that a lot more farmers in the Canadian West are are being much more kind to their soil. Yeah. Mm. yeah, absolutely. It is all about soil to me. That's you know, I, I was talking with our 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 professional farm crop advisor, um, mm. trying to make a plan for this coming growing season. And we were talking about different things we're doing. And I said, well, I, I actually don't really see myself as a walnut grower. And I say that mostly, you know, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's also just really obviously true. Like I've, I've never met a single person who's actually grown a vegetable or a fruit or a nut, right? right the right. plants do it. All, all we do is provide environmental conditions for it, right? Hmm. So I see myself, I'm, I'm a solar and soil farmer, right? So I'm, I'm trying to capture as much solar energy I can mm -hmm. in green canopy or cover crop or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to get the healthiest soil I can through inputs, right? Cause that's where I actually can put something in to the system that will benefit the crop that I'm trying mm -hmm. to get. I can put it into the soil. And, but again, that thinking of, of saying, I'm actually not a crop grower, but I am a soil tender Right is is a shift in thinking, but is really to me really dramatic because all of this, everything we've been talking about all morning, has been soil, 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 soil. The answer is soil, mm -hmm. and I think that's just fundamentally true. And another thing that I'll just toss in here because to me this is very important: the more we mulch, and the more we grow cover crops, and then just chop them down and leave them there, the more carbon we're introducing to the soil, mm. which is carbon that last year was carbon dioxide mm -hmm. and i i have heard it said and i'm not going to stand on this but i have i'm going to repeat it that if all of the farmers in sub-saharan africa forget the rest of the world but if all the farmers in sub-saharan africa heavily mulched we could return co2 levels to pre-industrial levels wow because we'd have sequestered so much carbon wow and we would also have dramatically increased the moisture retention capacity of the soil. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I really think that farmers could be the saviors of the world in that Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree with that. Yeah. And it's, you know, and, and I think the other end of that conversation, because carbon sequestration is so important for, you know, the very dire and critical fight in climate change. And then the other, the, the kind of the, the counter argument that's attempted there is food supply. Well, you know, we've got to farm this way if we're going to feed the world. Yes. And yet what we're finding is that millions of people are still going hungry. Like th this was your experience, right? You go and you say, why are farms not producing the way that they should be on a small scale or large scale? Mm -hmm. Right. We, we claim that our industrialized food system is feeding the world and yet the world is not being fed. Yes. And then again, like what your experience is showing is that these simple management changes is focused on soil. Now you're actually able to produce a lot more food. Yes. That we... You know, so so we have two options. A, we can either farm less land and some of it can go back to native vegetation and we can mm -hmm. still mm -hmm. produce the same mm -hmm. amount of food we're feeding today. 
or we can switch to these management practices and we can actually produce a whole lot more food. Yes, I, I entirely agree with that. And with far less difficulty. Like yeah. when, I, when I came home for the first time after I had learned about farming God's way and had been do, doing some training in Africa, I was chatting with my older sister and she said, I, I really don't think that I have the, the physical stamina to put in a garden this year. Well, that's the first time in her entire mm. adult life that she's ever said anything like that. Because I say she's mm. she's in, she's like all of us. We're all obsessive gardeners. And I said, Marilyn, I can show you how to put in a bigger garden this year than last year and do half the work. Mm. And she kind of smiled at me and she said, I'm in. <laughs> and we did it. And we did it. <laughs> so we we're not just learning to grow more food. But I think that we're learning that an awful lot of the stuff that we were taught when we were kids and how to grow vegetables mm -hmm. and fruit is as dumb as a box of rocks. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, and you're, like you said, you know, old systems die yes. hard. And, and when, if you were trying to say that to some of my neighbors, you know, they, they would start swearing up a storm yeah. and, and calling you all kinds of evil names. And it, it is interesting that, that sometimes things can be obvious, but because they're not traditional, they're, they're really skeptical. Yeah. Well, this paradigm shift, which I, as I say, I think we are on the cusp of the greatest paradigm shift in food production in all of history. If this is to happen, we really need to let our imaginations run wild hmm. and hmm. be willing to say, I wonder if, and then follow through, maybe with just a small chunk of your hmm. farm. You know, I wonder, yeah. hmm, you know, uh, one of my friends said to me, the, the best way to grow food he said, is to grow perennials. Mm. He said, don't plant and harvest and then do the same thing again the next year. He said, plant berry mm. bushes, plant tree crops, mm. plant, you know, perennials. Mm. That will, like, I, planted, I planted a dozen asparagus for my sister about four years ago. Once you plant it, you wait a year, and then all you ever do is pick. You really don't have to do mm. anything else except maybe compost it a bit. It's <laughs> almost in perpetuity. Yeah. Wow! I was told by the guy that sold me the uh, asparagus sets, well, you have to replace them, but every five years. I thought, hmm. I, I don't think that's true. So I actually walked around an old farm that's across from my property because I knew that this old couple, they'd been dead for 40 years, but I remember them from my childhood and they used to grow asparagus. So I started searching around. I almost fell into an uncapped well, but I just started rooting around looking and I found their asparagus plants. Wow. Still, Still going. going. Wow. And, you know, once you plant them, then there's no more soil disturbance. All yeah. you do is harvest. And I, I know that tree yeah. fruits are different. Like growing apples here when I was a kid, some of my some of my friends who were apple growers and I used to do a lot of picking and I managed an orchard for a part of one year. They're out with the sprayers four times a season. And I don't know how to fix that here because this is not stable environment for yeah. apples, you know. Right, right. And, and, that, and that's what I'm facing too. You know, if, if I was the only one growing walnuts in a 20 mile radius, I wouldn't have to spray nearly as much mm -hmm. as I do, but I'm, I am monosaturated, right? And if, and if I don't spray for a pest and my neighbor does, well, guess what that pest going to do? He's going to flutter his little wings over that's to right. my walnuts. Yeah. And so I, th there is kind of this forced environment that says, okay, we're going to need some really large systemic movements mm -hmm. of change. Um, for those of us within the system who already are hungry for the change to really participate fully in it. 
which is interesting. And, and, you know, there is, you know, you're mentioning about how doing some of these changes really requires less effort on the part of the farmer. And there's this element too, that's curious to me where farmers almost glory in their suffering, right? There's almost this, I don't know if it's because farming doesn't have some other prestige that engineering or being a doctor does or something else, but like farmers hang on to the sense that like we're up before the sun, we're out after the sun and we work seven and a half days a week and we never get a vacation. They, they, it's almost the sense of like, if you took that from them, would they still be a farmer? Mm -hmm. Uh, if you made their lives easier, would they say thank you? <laughs> you know, and and so there's almost this resistance to some of these changes because it almost feels cheating or it cheats them out of something that they're able to brag about. It's very interesting because uh, I when when people ask me about it, my response right now, and it, it's intentionally a little bit philosophical, but when they ask me about my work, I say, well, there there is a lot of work on the farm, but there is no labor. And I mean a few things by that. One, I mean I don't, I don't break my back farming intentionally. Like I work, and and this, this drives people crazy when I say it, both inside the farming community and outside the farming community. But I work as much as my body wants to work that day, and as much as the trees need me to work. Right? I find that nexus point between what the trees need and what my body can do, and that's all I do that day. And. And sometimes internally I have a hard time with that because I don't feel like I'm being productive enough. <laughs> and, but, but the, the, the land doesn't mind, right? Right. The land is very forgiving. Um, but I also mean that in the sense that my, my hours worked are not equated to an economic return, right? Which labor right. typically is right. Labor is you work for a certain amount of right. dollars per hour. I could work three times as many hours on this farm and not get 5% more output from it. Right. And that's just the reality of it because, right, our farm's fairly established, it's fairly stable, and so I'm focused on soil health and some other things. But there is this idea that, like, people, you know, people will text me at 7 in the morning, they'll be like, oh, I'm sure you've already been working for three hours. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm just rolling out of bed. Like, I mean, it's just, there's just this sense that, like. That may change as you get livestock. Are, <laughs> which which is okay with me too but but it is interesting the sense that like people seem to cling on to being identified by their labor mm -hmm. instead of just identifying with the earth cycles of productivity well i i have found the shift that has happened in my brain is that while i have always loved vegetable and fruit farming I, I can't say I'm a big fan of, fan of livestock, although I'll, I recognize their necessity to a, a healthy ecosystem. <clears throat> but it was always, I always saw myself in, in a struggle against soil quality, the mm. rainfall. It was a struggle. It was a, almost a battle. Mm. But it was me pitting my mind against the elements kind of mm. thing. Whereas in the last decade and a half or so, I see myself more as a, a partner mm. with, with the land mm. and with the seeds and the plants. I'm, we're buddies. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. That, yeah. that sounds a little weird, but I, 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 it has ceased to be the struggle mm. and it has become more of a labor of love, yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. And ha have you ever seen that limit your options? Have you ever in that partnership said, well, because I'm partnering with the land, I will not expect the land to do X, Y, or Z for me, but only expect it to do A, B, and C. The only compromise I have had to make is there were certain plants that I could have planted and I could have produced well, but it would have meant 
massive inputs of water in a very thirsty village in mm. Africa and probably massive inputs in terms of uh, insecticides, herbicides, mm. uh, that sort of fungicides. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was, I was asked if I was going to uh, replant a lot of the avocados that had died before mm. I got there. You know, we, somebody in the past had planted about 150 avocado trees. Mm. We only had about 30 or so left. The rest wow. of them had died. And uh, one of the first questions they asked was, you know, this great price for avocados. You're going to plant avocados. I said, no, no, I don't think I will. And they said, well, there's a lot of money in it. And I said, this place is just not right for avocados. Mm. I said, in another 10 years, once we get the periphery surrounded by nice, healthy, mature indigenous trees, Mm. and I've ameliorated the soil here for a decade, Mm -hmm. which of course didn't happen, Mm -hmm. uh, then I'll reconsider it. But I said, it's too hot. It's too dry and it's unfair to the neighbors around me to be using that much water in such mm. a thirsty community. That is a beautiful you know? picture of partnership to me. Yeah. And, and even here, there are, there are plants that I could grow here, which I won't because mm. you have to create too much of an artificial mm. situation for them to survive and thrive. Mm. And I won't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's, that's good to hear. Yeah. And that's, I think that way sometimes about our crops here, but honestly, I think that our crops would do great here if they weren't so mono, monosaturated, right? And that, that's the trick we're, we're balancing. But mm-hmm. no, that's great to hear. This, mm-hmm. man, this has been a really fun conversation for me. I have learned a lot from you and I love your wisdom and your perspective. Thank you. Just think of it as enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's clear that you are enthusiastic about it. And I'm, I'm excited to see how your province in Canada kind of either takes a hold of this or, or what new kind of foibles you discover in this journey of Mm -hmm. leading people in a new way of thinking, because it's, I, like you said, I, we're on the cusp of something magnificent. And yes, I, I truly believe that we are. And I, I, I really do look forward to a day in my lifetime as a 61 year old, I look forward to seeing the day when the only logistic that we will have to struggle with is movement of all the surplus. Hmm. That's a beautiful vision. Yeah. I like that. Um, because really I, I, here's the phrase I'll leave you with. I have always believed that central province could feed Kenya. Hmm. Kenya could feed East Africa. Hmm. East Africa could feed sub-Saharan Africa and sub-Saharan Africa could feed the world. Hmm. Hmm. I believe that. And you could say that, for anywhere. Yeah. Kansas could feed the American Midwest. Mm. You know, if they had to. If if they just imagined. And that's our show. If this conversation was meaningful to you like it was to us, leave a rating and review so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. Thank you for listening. We're so glad you're here. And we'd love for you to join the conversation too. But hey, you've heard enough of our voices. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at ofdustanddivinity.com. Partner with us on Patreon and get access to exclusive content, merch, and hidden perks. Go to patreon.com slash ofdustanddivinity. Join our Facebook group of Dust and Divinity podcast community and engage with us on Instagram at of Dust 
underscore and divinity. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you, for you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Thank you.